Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight and this first programme of 2015. The year turns for makers of art look to the light of inspiration. The winter solstice already behind us, this the eve of Little Christmas or Nolignaman, a time of light and darkness, traditionally a time of looking ahead and glancing back. For many people, a time to take stock. Tonight, four artists meet to share their thoughts on some of the work they brought to light in the old year and to share their thoughts on the creative pulses that help to inspire or console them at this time. With me in studio are poet and novelist Peter Sarr, whose new collection of poems, The Rooms, has just been published by the Gallery Press. Novelist and short story writer Mary Costello, whose first novel, Academy Street, has garnered high praise from writers like J.M. Cutsey. And visual artist Isabel Nolan, whose show at IMA, The Weakening Eye of Day, drew on light as image and power. And composer and musician Sean McElaine, whose new album A Slender Song is just out in what I must say is a very striking, indeed beautiful vinyl edition. Peter, sorry, if I could come to you first. Your eighth collection of poems, The Rooms, published by the Gallery Press. Would you introduce and read one of the poems from that collection for us as a way into the the entire collection. Sure. Um, I'll read the opening um, poem, which is called A Mapmaker's Song. And it's it's kind of comes out of an obsession of mine with maps and with cities. And it's kind of inspired by, there's a great map of Dublin that was done in 1756 by John Rock. And I used to have it on my wall um, and kind of following my finger doing kind of journeys around the city. And and he used to boast that he had every single building in the city on his on his map. And so... Really, that was the spark for, for the poem. The Mapmaker's Song. The mapmaker downed his tools. I've caught it. Every alley, every street, every fanlight and window ledge, the city fixed and framed. Now I want everything else. I want to be a historian of footsteps, a cartographer of hemlines and eyelids. I want to catch what the pavements say when they sing to each other in their deep laboratories, plotting every journey since the place began. I want the whole unlosable database, the repeating place, kings stalking the server farms, tailbacks and looped alarms. I want to be where brushstrokes flicker on a bank of screens, where graveyards tilt and quiet populations crowd the air, their quarters risen again, their furniture smashing through the floors. I want to stand at the centre of a great clutter, mapping ashes, mapping bones, archivist, enumerator, hanger-on, signing the returns of an infinite census. I want to be beyond everything I've reached or drawn, not much at all, or all there is, a geographer of breath, a curator of hands. I want to lie in the atrium of the Museum of the Fingertip and touch, touch, touch. And I suppose you so much becomes almost tactile from from reading the poems. There's such a sense of of space and place and architecture and street, and it, it, those strains seem to, in a way, almost fascinate a lot of your poetry. And, and the title of the collection, "The Rooms," in a sense, seems to conjure almost a, a, an engagement with space in time. Tell me, in particular, about the long sequence that that gives the collection its title. It's it's very striking and kind of this re, almost this loose form that makes for an extraordinary whole. 
Yeah, I, I kind of it kind of came together. I mean, I suppose as you say, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with all, all kinds of spaces, and I, and it was just a time, or it, it was a way of talking about actual physical places, places that I remembered, uh, but also I suppose kind of psychic places, kind of places of the mind and the heart as as well. And I was also thinking of the the notion of the room, the the stanza. Um, the literal kind of meaning of you know room uh, and, and so and so as a place where the imagination might go as well, so all all, all those kind of things came together, and I had this idea of wanting to write a group of short poems that would somehow talk to each other, because I like the idea. I mean, not so much a sequence, but just a cluster or a constellation of of different moments that somehow uh, would speak together. So that's really where where it came from. And in a sense, to reading it, one enters the worlds that you create and and somehow uh, there's an echo for everyone of, of being alive in time, no matter what your particular landscape is. There's a feeling of, of the familiarity of almost at times being lost as well in, in space and time. Uh, yeah, lost and, and, and quite and, and that sense of the kind of self also slightly dissolving across across time and sort of going back. So remembering um, people who are not alive anymore and kind of exploring their 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 lives and wandering through kind of very physical landscapes that I kind of remembered a lot and and related to a lot um, urban landscapes as well and just kind of that thing of of just rooms and spaces that persist even though even when you've left them. Um, a bit of a departure for you was your move into fiction with Black Reed, the book for children. What inspired you to, to, to write that book and where did the story come from? Back to, back to John Rock again and his map. Um, I was actually, I was trying to write a piece about him and that map. And so I had it um, pinned to my wall and, and, and doing my kind of journeys through it. And then I started to read books about the period and I was reading Morris Craig's book about, the, about 18th century Dublin. I came across this story of a boy, um, the son of a, of a lord who was a kind of bit of a gambler um, and who who basically needed to get rid of his son in order to sell the interest in land he was about to inherit. So so he he kind of abandons his son, and the son enters up wandering the the streets of dark and dangerous eighteenth century Dublin and joining gangs, and then eventually being shipped off as a as an indentured servant to to America. Um, and it's just a, it was a remarkable story, and it, it it gave rise to one of the most famous legal cases of the eighteenth century in Ireland when he escaped, finally came came back. Um, and sued the, the the uncle, the biggest, longest running legal kind of battle of its day. But I, I was just fascinated by this spectacle, or the, the idea of this boy abandoned, um, used to a life of privilege, and then suddenly finding himself as a kind of street urchin, uh, you know, wandering the streets and ending up getting involved in all kinds of things and, and crime and, and hiding out in the, in the Phoenix Park with a band of outlaws and all this kind of stuff. Without really thinking too much about it, I sat down and started writing it. And then it gradually became clear that I was writing a novel for younger readers of whatever age. And that's, and that's really where it came from. Yeah. Would you read a, a little for All us right. from Black Reed? OK, I'll read a little bit where he, he has discovered, I mean, he, um, he's been abandoned, um, but he decides on impulse to go back to the house where his father is, thinking maybe his father's changed his mind. And he sees hanging on the front door um, a black... Um, wreath and he doesn't know what this is for and he gets into the back of the house and the servants let him in and give him a bit of food and then this is what happens after they'd swallowed a few mouthfuls James asked about the black wreath he'd seen on the door Smeedy and Mrs Rudge looked at each other awkwardly finally Mrs Rudge spoke it's given out that you died master the wreath is for you James almost choked on his stew dead how can I be dead look at me 
Smeaty gazed at him, as if not quite convinced that he was real and not a ghost returned to cause trouble for his master. His lordship was greatly distressed, he said. It was said that you had drowned in the river in a most unfortunate accident. He said this in such a way that James felt he had inconvenienced the household by not having the grace to perish quietly. I never believed it myself, Mrs. Rudge said. I always thought your going away was her doing, and since no body was ever produced, I never believed you had gone to your reward. Was there a funeral? James asked, hardly daring to utter the word. Aye, there was, said Smeedy, enlivened by the memory. He described it in some detail and with unmistakable relish. The solemn procession, the onlookers, the grave voice of the Archbishop in the cathedral, the tears of Miss Deacon and his father. Oh, be quiet, man, can't you? Mrs. Rudge interrupted. Young James doesn't need to hear all that. It's very hard to keep cheerful when you're dead. From the night of the black wreath onwards, James's life seemed to spiral downwards as if, being thought dead, the city had decided to wash its hands of him and no longer offer him any protection. So it gets worse from that point in the beginning of his of his miseries. You know? Indeed it does. Peter Sarr there reading from Black Reed, The Stolen Life of James Lovett. Isabel Nolan, um, as well as having a, a solo show at IMA, uh, you had another exhibition in the prestigious Sean Kelly Gallery in New York in 2014. Um, your artwork, I suppose, and I know it's been described in this way, almost as, as something of a feast of contrasting ways of of showing something of the strangeness of the world around us. How do you choose what form you'll use at any one time? Since so often your exhibitions consist of a, a variety of, of media, you know, of drawing, sculpture, different forms of making. Well, I'm very interested in a really kind of fundamental question, which is like, how does meaning actually get made by things? And how do all of the different kind of materials in the world affect the way that we, you know, read the world and understand in our environment and even our capacity to inhabit the environment? So the show was very kind of concerned with having a kind of a very diverse range of materials in order to kind of to allude to all of those possibilities and all of those things that were in the world. So it's something as simple as the fact that the kind of the material conditions of our world and the physical shape of our world, it actually kind of enables or disables certain kinds of thinking to happen. So the show itself was uh, it was structured over four different rooms, four different spaces. And each of those rooms was concerned with a different kind of era. So to my mind, the very first room, it's only four rooms, and the first room is trying to think about deep time and to think about the world before we were there to think the world. So the framework that we most usually use for that is kind of a mythic framework Mm. to some degree than a scientific framework. But mostly in that room, I was concerned with how myths, you know, um, provide a kind of a foothold on these spaces that we can't access rationally or, you know, that we can't actually imagine. Um, So then the second room, very kind of, to put it quite crudely, I guess, the second room was concerned with like religious and spirituality and those kind of motifs that get activated to create a certain kind of version of the world. The third room was kind of the kind of post-enlightenment now room. So that was a sort of scientific mode of thinking. And then the final room was uh, that featured the death of the sun. So that was a very kind of, I think the only way we can think about that maybe is through something like art. So in a, in a sense, a brief history of the world in, in four rooms. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there, was there one or is there one particular piece from any of those rooms uh, that for you goes to the, almost the heart and essence of, of the work and indeed to a particular point in your own practice as an artist? Um, well, I think, you know, there's two... The, the show was kind of bookended, I guess, but the, the first room had a text work in it. And mm. this was my myth about the foundation of or the formation rather of rock on the surface of the earth and how it 
you know, comes into relation to the sun. And then the very final wall in the room had an enormous black and white photograph of a pair of donkeys in a graveyard. So that was a situation that we engineered by borrowing some donkeys from the kind people at the donkey sanctuary. And we brought them to Bully's Acre, which is a graveyard at the end of the Royal Hospital Camadum grounds. So you had come through these rooms that are full of, as you say, kind of a rich array of objects and sculptures. And there was this sort of then final kind of absurd moment when you were actually confronted with an image of the real world, albeit a highly kind of constructed moment. So it's kind of funny and very maudlin because I think the idea of donkeys being in a graveyard is a super sentimental idea. But I think the kind of the point of it there is to kind of bring one back to the real world and say, you know, there's always this problem of access and how do you know that you've actually known the world? There's something as well, I like to think about how insignificant we are. And I think, you know, a lot of the time when we want to think about our insignificance, we think about the vast, lumpy, cold universe and how, you know, teeny tiny we are. But all you have to do is sort of look out the window and then you can equally sort of realise, you know, how although you're so super interested in the world and we're desperate to know and understand the world, the world is utterly indifferent to us, you know, and the universe is profoundly kind of ignorant of our existence. So you walk into a room and there's two enormous donkeys and they just look over your head. <laughs> I don't know why there's something uh, quite iconic and, and primal almost about that image of, mm. of donkeys in a graveyard. But you say it and immediately it conjures so much. And there's a certain playfulness as well in, in, in that image. Uh, and I know that, that people have remarked on, on this aspect of, of your work. I mean, is that something you're conscious of as, as you make it, that there is, as was in, in not mirroring, but maybe in, in questioning some things about life and how we make and see mm. that there is that humor is is a strand that maybe it at times sustains us too yeah i mean it's it's that's sort of a kind of i guess a tacit presence in the work or something because it's in one sense i'm interested in kind of poking fun at like these enormous conceptual frameworks which do demonstrate an incredible kind of genius that humans have for figuring things out and for inventing incredible stories about our situation here so there's you know and then the, the like the show is kind of ridiculous because you have squashed into four rooms all of this ambition to say something about this vast kind of history and vast piece of time so if you go through it quite quickly you're going oh and here's another lovely thing and this is funny and this is thing but if you actually kind of go through it slowly it's much more um, I think the point of it is much more that you're trying to I was trying to do something very reductive and very simplistic and so say, slow looking would be important for you. Slow looking, yeah, yeah. And but just to come back to your point, the kind of playfulness, and I think like I think playfulness and also something like beauty, they're not an end in themselves. So hopefully that it's much more that that's kind of a byproduct of the work and it's a way of compelling and sustaining attention and then kind of drawing people into the kind of the narratives and maybe the kind of conceptual underpinnings of the show. Of course, people um, coming into or leaving Ireland as well around New Year can see another of your pieces uh, uh, at Dublin Airport. Um, yeah. This wonderful piece at Terminal 2, um, Turning Point. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a terrific piece. And just describe it for people who maybe we haven't seen it but might now look out for it going through. Yeah, it's just a big yellow thing and, you know, that was I mean, the most important kind of part of that commission for me was to secure that space in the airport because you know they kind of wanted it to go somewhere a little bit more out of the way but it kind of it's there to greet you when you come through arrivals and you pass by it on the escalators when you're going up to departure so it's in a very kind of central location 
frankly, it's a it's a very large, useless object that's, you know, kind of activating or maybe even irritating the space in a particular way. And it's a kind of peculiar shade of yellow. And I think that's kind of the most important thing. It's sort of saying there's something in the world there's something in this space which is very much a kind of, it's a machine, the airport, for processing humans. So to have something that's not doing anything functional in there, I think, is kind of important. How important is, is colour for you in, in, in your work? Um, yeah, colour is extremely important. I mean, I guess it's like, I mean, it's sometimes it's very, very subtle. And then it's also kind of, um, it acts on you. I mean, that's the thing about art. It isn't just a conceptual, it's also effective, obviously. And I think you can you can make an object. Like, for instance, I often cover steel sculptures and fabric. Mm-hmm. And it changes the nature of these works entirely because they lose all their kind of coolness. And they become these kind of soft... Um, soft objects that have a very sort of different relationship to the world. So colour I often think of is actually just a skin. Um, it's really a skin for sculptures or something, you know, and it it changes. So, so I like kind of these weird in-between colours that, you know, it's not quite green, it's not quite yellow. And A show at Emma, another in New York, um, and and then the presence of your work in, in that very public space at the airport. Uh, what has been the experience of showing and seeing your work in each of these places, and I know you've you've had work in many places around the world. Um, and what, do you get much response from the public? Yes and no. I mean, that's a that's a very tricky question to answer in any kind of a concrete way. I mean, there's there's a limited amount of discourse in sort of public venues about mm. visual arts. So it's nice to have more of that. Um, I mean, yeah, people, the nice thing about having a big show in your hometown is I sort of felt like I owned that bit of Emma for a while and I had a lot of meetings with different people up there and I'd be going through the show with like a visiting curator or something and people would then realise I was the artist and they'd stop and ask me questions. And that was a really, that was a really new experience. I hadn't had that before. Yeah, no, and it's good. And then there's a, I think there's a, a process that most artists go through that you sort of, you kind of, you make your show and then you kind of break up with it a little bit and you start finding fault with it. And I actually sustained a relationship with that show for an awful lot longer because, you know, it wasn't like I flew off to another city and had an affair with the show and then came home. I was, it was there and I visited it a lot. And I really like my kind of my feelings and opinions about the show and how it was working kind of changed a lot. So um, as someone much wittier than me put it, that's the great thing about having kind of a critical reception and a public is they'll kind of go out with your show when you've broken up with it. So... They'll continue to, to look and begin to, to love it. Sean McElane, uh, you've just had a new album released as an LP, a vinyl. And again, speaking of colour, uh, a very striking orange vinyl it is. Uh, vinyl All the Rage again. Uh, that album, A Slender Song, we'll talk about it in a moment. First, let's hear a track from it.
Haunting sound of all song, a slender song from the album A Slender Song by Sean McElaine. Uh, Sean, that recorded, I think, here in the radio centre in RTE. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, it was, I think it was one year ago or maybe two years ago. So I don't know, a, a Christmas special that Donald and Ian did. Um, there was a whole group of t- different people and we all played live. And so that was one track that came out of. I mean, I, I did a whole series of l- solo live recordings, which I still continue to do. And. Um, after after four years, I realised I had ten hours of recorded material, so I had to kind of whittle them down into trying to make them into something that you can listen to. And that is what has made this, I think, quite remarkable album. Um, a very different process to to the last album, your first one, uh, Long After the Music Is Gone, which was made in a, in a in a very different way. Yeah, that was um, made up in Leitrim. Um, it was very much about Leitrim, I think, in a way, and I spent a lot of time cycling around. Uh, the mountains and whatnot in the area while I was kind of, yeah, it was more composed. There's still plenty of improvisation in it, but it was more um, maybe focused or funneled into a certain way of thinking of a particular place. What you know, what inspires the, the sounds and the kind of sound images that make your compositions so strong and, and so particular? You know, how how do you work? Do, do you listen? Do you pull from what's around you, how how does this emerge? I think what you're talking about emerging is actually things that are emerging in the interior imaginations of the listeners more so than maybe exactly what I'm doing. 
And the more that it sounds different to each different listener, the happier I'm going to be with it that way. And for sure, I'm also a listener. I, I love music too. So I'm trying to, yeah, just create things. It's very much from an imagination kind of point of view. Uh, it's very abstract, of course. Uh, there, there might You can certainly point to certain influences, like a lot of people will hear some kind of Irish music influence. It's a world I've been kind of... I won't say steeped in because I'm not, uh, you know, a real Irish musician. <laughs> I'm a musician from Ireland, <laughs> yes. but it's a different thing. So my background is much more towards jazz and improvisation, but um, I guess I've moved pretty far away from the any of the aesthetics of contemporary jazz by now, and I'm very interested in yeah, Irish music. and Of and from the tradition, but but forging something new as well. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'm not trying to trailblaze, and this is the this is now what Irish traditional music can be or anything. It's nothing like that. It's just just an interest, another sonic imagination that captures my imagination. So I'm trying to use that in some kind of way. It, there's a, a, a certain electronic sound as well running yeah. uh, through this new work, and and you said that the, the music is the sound of process, which I think is is fascinating. It's almost like mm. you're making the sounds that emerge as as you as you do it. Yeah, that's totally key. For all the these performances, these solo performances, I've no idea what is going to happen at all except that I'm going to hopefully play something uh, for some kind of duration, but apart from duration, I don't know anything about what's going to happen. So I have I've developed software which will react to everything that I'm playing live, which I can control, but it's very much I tried my best to make it the electronics work in such a way that it completely blends with the sound of the instrument itself. So hopefully they kind of arise in some sort of organic way out of the sound world that I already have with the instruments. Uh, should we hear another track from the album? Uh, a track that we really like, Dingle. Tell us a little bit about it. Um, this is a track, it's just another gig, uh, and this one is called Dingle. Uh, it's one of the few album titles which I haven't um, changed. A lot of them I can't remember where they're from anymore. This is from that church in Dingle, which is pretty well known now for the other Voices Festival. Uh, and this, this particular improvisation was made in the middle of a, a different gig, actually. Uh, I was playing with This Is How We Fly, this other group that I play with a lot. And sometimes there's solo situations, so that's just a, a time where I pressed record and this happened.
deep and resonant tones of Dingle there from Sean McElnane's album A Slender Song and incidentally a rather stunning artwork by Cork artist Craig Carey on the cover of that album. Um, Mary Costello, you had quite a year here at home and uh, your first novel also enjoyed international release and praise from all kinds of eminent names. I'm talking of course about Academy Street, which won the Eason Irish Book of the Year and has been shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award. How do you like to describe that novel to those who haven't yet read it? It's a quiet novel about an unremarkable life, really. It's a a woman's life over five or six decades, begins in the 1940s in the west of Ireland. Um, Tess, the central character, is a little girl aged seven who grows up in a the big old house called Easterfield. And the early part of the novel is um, concerns the rupture in her life that's caused by the sudden death of her mother. And then she grows up, trains as a nurse and moves to New York for the rest of her life, really. 
It reminds me at times of John McGaffin's work. There's a, a certain a feeling of familiarity in, in those fields. And yet there's something something new in it, too. And I don't know whether that's a particular feminine perspective. I know people have, have talked about a profound sadness in the book. For me, it's it's both sad and yet saturated with a kind of light of life in, in, in all its moods. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it, did you draw a lot from your own growing up in, in, in making and shaping the book? Yes, there is a family di- dimension to the novel. Um, my mother grew up in a big old house and farm just like Easterfield and that was my model. I remember it when I was a child, we used to go to visit and it had two stairs and big hall and a gong. And when she was three, her mother died suddenly. Um, and when I was a child, I was very aware, I, I became aware of this at some point. I was very close to my mother with a very strong bond, still do. But... Um, as a child, I somehow became aware that she had lost her mother and that I was I found it almost unbearable that she would have had no mother. Um, and when when that woman, my grandmother, died, the older sisters had been in boarding school and they were taken out of boarding school and they didn't return. And they would have been destined for university. I think their friends went to university. And as an adult, I it struck me the catastrophic effects that a mother's death, a parent's death can have on a family and how the trajectory of the whole family's lives can change and maybe even be felt in future generations. So that that was some of the background of it. Later on, two of my mother's sisters and a brother emigrated to America in in the 1960s and as a child we used to get photographs home and they all looked so beautiful and glamorous and they didn't look at all like my Irish relatives they looked very glamorous and lovely frocks and everything so like everyone growing up in Ireland I you know I was enthralled by New York by the time I became an adult you know we all have a love affair with it in some ways and one of my aunts Carmel was a nurse uh, in Manhattan she only remained there for four years but she told me stories Um, she came back and settled in Ireland but she had lived in, 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 a, in a flat on Academy Street so I, I've never lived in New York but I've gone back there a few times and a few summers ago I did a house swap with somebody and I lived on the Upper East Side for a few weeks and every day I took the A train up to 207th Street the district is Inwood, the northern tip of Manhattan where a lot of Irish lived and I found Academy Street and every day I walked around those streets and went to the church and the library and all the places that um, perhaps my aunt would have visited and I found it quite moving in a way because Tess and the story was forming in my mind um, and I, I really felt almost this echo of their footsteps in the streets and I was also quite taken by the women and men of that generation not just immigrants even my own parents how they lived quite very sincere and innocent lives you know they weren't part of any counterculture unfolding in in the 60s in America they were Irish Catholic girls mostly Um, and I found I find all of that quite moving because they went with a lot of dreams not all of them realized of course same everywhere Um, but something about them had a had an effect on me. Uh, your collection of stories, The China Factory, which was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, um, has a story called You Fill Up My Senses. And I think in that we see the seeds of this novel, of, of Academy Street. I wonder, you know, you, you talked there about going to the States and what almost unfolded in front of you from the past. But I wonder, was the novel growing in your mind for many years, you know, almost being drafted into life? I think um, certainly that story gave me the seeds of it. Uh, There were a few other things. Um, My uncle, who I had inherited the farm, he died two years ago. And after his funeral, as I was was with my mother at the funeral, and something, I had a, 
an image. I was looking down over the land and I had an image and I, I knew I had the end of my novel then. But certainly the child character grows somewhat out of that short story because that was the only story I'd ever written with a child from a child's perspective. And it was very different to what I'd all of my other stories so when I was writing Tess uh, writing the the child section was was quite different because when you're writing a child the language needs to be simple and she was seven but yet you need to convey a lot of the inner life and a child lives very much in the moment everything all the sensory details are unfolding very much in the present like an animal in some ways so I remained I had to remain with the child for you know moments long moments and conveys something of, of Tessa's interior as a child. She is hyper alert to the physical world. She's um, quite intrigued by the mystery of the physical world in, in some ways. She can almost hear the grass grow or the pebbles dancing and and that's her sensibility and that's formed in her childhood or maybe she's born with it, I'm not sure. But in order to lay that down for Tess as an adult, I lingered with those scenes with her as a child. Because there is a really acute sense of, of this child alert to everything in life mm. and watching, watchful, really relishing life on the one hand, but also slightly fearful. I thought that balance was was really well achieved. Have you had very different responses to, to the book in, in different countries? You know, have you had different interpretations and readings of it? Yes, uh, I mean, most people, I'm continually told it's very sad. Um, uh, some people find the early chapters much sadder than the later ones, and it's very much a taste thing, back and forth. Um, but yes, people, you know, they say it's a quiet, unremarkable life unfolding in a short enough book. So they're, they're mostly the, the reactions that Tess is meek, and um, yet she's fully alive. She's I don't think she's passive in that, that her interior life is where it all happens for her. She's a typical introvert in that she gets her energy from within. But she's always trying to, both as an adult and as a child, she's always trying to put her finger on something as if she's trying to reach some layer beyond external reality or trying to put her finger on something that matters. Maybe it's something numinous or sublime or maybe even the divine, but that's what she's trying to reach. Her relationship with her father is is particular as well and his presence in the book is is striking. Um, at times almost an absent presence and, and yet so strong. You're going to read a little uh, from the book for us and maybe set the scene for us before you do. Yeah, well, Tess's father is quite, he has a strong presence. He's not, he's, he's a darkish presence. He's not violent or anything, but he exerts an air of menace in some ways. And um, once his wife has died, I think he's at sea emotionally and yet he's got this family he has to rear. So Tess, at this point, I'm going to read a few, uh, a little bit. She's trained as a nurse and she's occasionally coming back to Easterfield. It's before she leaves for America, but she is an adult. With each trip back to Easterfield, changes accrue. Captain is gone. He slunk from the shadows on his belly one day and lay under the wheel of the cars that entered the yard. Mike Connolly returned to his own people in Connemara, too old and ill now to endure the labours or fulfil the duties he had performed at Easterfield for 35 years. Tess slips into her old ways with her father, an attitude of reverence, obedient service, meekness. One night, a peaceful lull falls on the kitchen. Will I cut your hair? she asks. He turns his head and she waits to be denounced. He looks at her, baffled, stunned. His chin begins to quiver. 
she is flooded by tender feelings for him. She sees for the first time all he has endured, holding things together, holding himself together, poised always to defend against a new catastrophe. She gets up and lays a towel on his shoulders and begins to cut his hair. Neither of them says a word. She is moved by his silent acquiescence. Gently, she takes each strand and cuts, the sound of the scissors in the air between them, the hair falling to the floor, and his sorrow for all that is lost, lying silent within him. Mary Costello reading from her novel Academy Street. I'm going to ask each of you to to share with us um, what you're likely to turn to uh, in the way of music or poetry or film or visual art or whatever at this time of of years turning, you know, what you'll... uh, Peter, I think for you, it's medieval poetry. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's, 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 I suppose it's become a, a recent obsession of mine and, and it's something that, that seems to happen in winter, particularly I start reading these poems about spring and um, turning to this, these amazing kind of poems and melodies from the 12th century, the kind of beginning of the, of the troubadour kind of tradition um, in this beautiful kind of language of Occitan. And then, and then in some cases, I mean, I mean thousands of these have survived, luckily, um, but very few melodies, and in, and and in some cases we have both the text and and the melody, um, and so I kind of have been listening to this one, which is uh, when I hear the lark, uh, when I see the lark, and it's this kind of thing of, it, it, kind of thinking of this being performed at the court of Elner of Aquitaine. It's kind of just it just kind of draws you. So I have I have probably dozens of different recordings of this that I kind of keep going back to. Um, I think that we're going to hear a little from from that, uh, from an album called Love, Revelry and the Dance and Medieval Music um, by Millenarium. Uh, you've also, I think, translated a little bit that you might read for us before we hear the music. When I see the lark beat his wings against the sun, self-forgetting, falling for the sweetness of it, then such envy comes on me of all who go rejoicing. How is it my heart? is not crushed by desire. The sound of Millenarium there from the album Love, Revelry and the Dance in Medieval Music. Sean McElaine, at this time of year, um, what will you do in these long, dark evenings? Is it a time to be quiet, to think, to listen for those new sounds? Um, when, I, when I get a chance, it certainly is. Yeah, it's a beautiful time to listen to things. Um, uh, one thing that I, I do like to turn to is the Tao Te Ching, this, this old, old Chinese book. There's something kind of cleansing and yeah, it's kind of a, a starting place, I think. A starting place for what? I mean, what, what for, do those texts reveal or, or just bring for to us? thought, for thought patterns, and for yeah, maybe just checking yourself, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you open pages at random? Yeah, they're all just short little things. I have yeah. So. Open open a page at random and read a little for us. In the pursuit of knowledge, every day something is added. In the practice of the Tao, every day something is dropped. Less and less do you need to force things until finally you arrive at non-action. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone. True mastery can be gained by letting things go their own way, can't be gained by interfering. Does that um, particular strain of, of Eastern 
thought and and philosophy and way of seeing influence you in in a larger sense in 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 what you do yeah it does actually very very directly um not so much necessarily eastern but maybe some some of the ideas that are shared by those across different traditions so uh, for instance one large thing with which that that thing i just read out there would directly uh, tie into my work with alexander technique which is a i guess a a way of understanding it more about the way that we move and the way that we think and very much about removing obstacles that for some reason we like to throw into our path so and that also very much speaks to the way i try and create music very much about just accepting what's going to happen and um, diving headlong into risk and those kind of ideas so yeah I think it about how we fly yeah, <laughs> it's how we fly Marie Costello I think that world is not totally unfamiliar to you when I heard the I Ching there I used to consult it as well For I haven't done it for quite a while I studied young for a while and, and came to the I Ching that way um, but yes I I used it all the time but I, sh- I should return to it more but th- I used it so much I felt a bit like this one of uh, I think in Woody Allen's films he says you know he can hardly buy bedlin without check- consulting his, his therapist well I was a bit like that with I Ching hardly left the house without consulting him um, Apart from that at this time what would you look to especially in the way of, of reading um, I think yeah these few days you get the feeling that the world is off duty and that even for me re- reading it seems more private in some ways so I like to return to old favourites like poetry especially I never come away empty handed from poetry um, Rilke and Ted Hughes but I, I do like to read essays as well this time I like to dip in, out, in and out of a lot of things um, Borges' Conversations he's, there's a book out for his conversations a couple of years before he died and also I love um, which are always there I like to just have books around me and uh, The Art of Fiction the, seri- the interviews with writers from the Paris Review I love those this time um, Isabel, the title of your exhibition at IMA earlier in the year uh, took its title the, the Weakening Eye of Day from Thomas Hardy's poem The Darkling Thrush uh, an evocative title for this time of year uh, Might it be to Hardy or something completely different that you'd turn? Well I was very tempted of course to talk about the Hardy poem because it's just so perfect for this time of year and I had Louis MacNeese's poem Snow in my head as well and another, yes yeah, so I kind of thought maybe I should be I spent so much time on the fringes of other people's disciplines and kind of making obstacles and interfering and poking into other worlds and trying to understand things that are very complicated. But then I thought, really, what do I do at this time of year? And pretty much the only time of year when I kind of guarantee time to like read fiction during the day or to watch movies during the day. So, yeah, I thought I'd pick a very uncomplicated pleasure. And I absolutely do watch Singing in the Rain every year. So that's my, uh, yeah. that's the thing I return to, I think. Yeah, that's a pretty good thing to turn to. Well, I mean, that's it. I'm sort of apologising for it, but it's also an absolutely perfect work of art. There is like, you know, it's an extraordinary film. So it's got like incredible dancing and music. And then it's got this brilliant kind of plot line within a plot line. And then if you want to kind of, you know, approach it from a, a kind of, with, if you want to have your brain a little bit more switched on, it's got all this lovely dimension about being pretending to be a film that's about filmmaking and poking fun at like you know genre and at this moment of transition in Hollywood. But it's just it's you know it's just such a pure pleasure. I watched it the other night by way of research to make sure I was you know up to speed, and I think my face hurt at the end of it. I was just <laughs> smiling so much. So you're definitely watching it again, uh, and a great soundtrack, of course. Uh, would you? 
pick one, maybe one. Yeah, I thought I'd just go for one of the kind of very, uh, very simple, jolly ones rather than the most famous one. So this is, yeah, the girls from the Coconut Grove. So it's one of the the songs at the beginning of the films when... uh, I'll do the whole night long. From Singing in the Rain from 1952 and it, it really is infectious, uh, wonderful and uh, Isabel Nolan, thank you uh, for reminding us of that and uh, thanks to all our guests tonight uh, Isabel Nolan, Mary Costello, Peter Sir, and Sean McElaine and details of all their work. Check it out on our website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash arts tonight. Next week, Tono Quinn on music and his work as editor of the Journal of Music. Join us then and a happy new year to all. Good night. Arts Tonight was presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onloon.